Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Today we're happy to welcome Sholto Kainach, who is a pianist and who is the founder and director of the Oxford Leader Festival. Sholto, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to chat to you both. I had to rehearse the pronunciation of your last name several times, but I got it pretty good, didn't I? You said it's Scottish, right? It, it was it was spot on. It was better than 99.9% of times anybody else has ever said it. That's what we like. As, as I explained, I'm very sensitive to that because I've lived in countries where people cannot pronounce my name at all. I wanted to get you on the program because you are the founder of the Oxford Leader Festival, which was created in 2002 and director of the festival. This is coming up in October. And you have a streaming option where you can subscribe to individual concerts or to the whole festival. Now, I moved to the UK in 2013. And when I heard about the 2014 festival, where over three weeks you were doing all of Schubert's songs, I was like, wow, I have been waiting for this all my life. But unfortunately, September, October is my busiest time of the year for work. I read about Apple products. Apple releases all their new stuff in September and October. And there's no way I could have taken the time off. But this year, I'm going to sign up for that streaming. I love the fact that I don't have to watch all the concerts live. I can go back, maybe watch two or three in the evening instead of afternoon and all that. Tell us about how you founded the festival, how it became so important, and how you've branched out now into this streaming option, which is the ideal thing for our times. Yeah, well, you've kind of just mentioned all the milestones, really. I mean, we, we started off in 2002, so we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. I was basically still a student when I started it. In fact, I just graduated from my undergraduate degree in Oxford, and then I was about to move to London, go and do my postgraduate training as a pianist. And I just wanted to do some concerts with friends. So we put on this little Schubert series. So Schubert's sort of always been at the heart of it. Although in the years since then, we've grown and grown, as, as you know. And I think, uh, you know, we now, we're now we're much more wide ranging than that. And in fact, we're you know, we've stuck with the name The Leader Festival, but we're a song festival. We do all sorts of songs in different languages and from different periods within classical music and the classical framework. That's, that's I'd say, the defining thing. But That was going to be one of my questions. We'll get to it in a minute, exactly what Leader is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, yeah, well, we'll get, we can come back to that. As yeah, you say, tell us I more about the festival. For us, one of the, the, the big moments, were, were, the big moment rather, came in 2014, the festival that you first picked up on, really. And it's something that I'd had in my mind for years. I mean, I, having just said this thing about, oh, well, it's not all about ge German song, it, Schubert's always been incredibly close to my heart. And I, I realized no one had ever really attempted to do this huge body of work that he wrote in a single festival. And it became a sort of ambition to do that. It took us about five years to plan it. And we launched it in 2014. We did uh, an expanded festival and it just totally put us on the kind of international map. And we changed our whole way of programming. I realized with that kind of density of events over three weeks, we needed to have a chamber music series and we needed to have lots of interesting talks and other things around it. And we needed to commission new music to complement it. Uh, and we had the strap line of bringing Schubert's Vienna to Oxford. And we tried to make the whole city of Oxford feel a little bit like you know 1820s Vienna and I think that really went down amazingly well with people and we for the first time we had visitors from all over the world so it was a big kind of you know uh, point in our development and then the other milestone you mentioned is this move to the the online 
an international reach. And the other big step up for us was last year. And, you know, amidst all the mayhem of the year, we decided we simply had to go ahead with something. And so we did a, a very ambitious online 40 event festival, all completely live. And we put in very high production values, uh, a lot of thought into the programming of it as well. And when basically nothing was going on at all, we put this festival out there. And, you know, song, as again, we might discuss in a minute, is a relatively niche art form. I don't think it should be, but it is. And for once that played in our favor, you know, we realized there were these pockets of leader lovers and song lovers all over the world who maybe had been following us from afar and not able to come to the festival because it's not you know, easy to travel from the US or Australia to Oxford. Uh, uh, and suddenly all these people saying, fantastic, this festival I've known about for years, I can just plug in and watch it at home. And because the quality is really good, I can get a lot of the, the actual experience, the, the next best thing to being actually in the hall. And so this year, we're now going ahead with you know, getting people back into the hall. Obviously, that is important to us. That's, that's crucial that we've got audiences in as soon as we can. But we've decided to take a, take a, take a chance and, and try and keep that big international audience on board and live stream the whole festival once again. There's what, 80 or 90 events? 107 numbered events in the festival. But some of them repeated, right? Some of them... So there's the 16 evening concerts. Once in the afternoon, one in the evening. Exactly. So the 16 evening concerts are done twice. Um, so I guess for your online audience, that leaves a mere, whatever that is... 91. 88 or something. No, yeah. Uh, mental yeah. maths is failing me, but 107 minus 16 plus two events that are walking tours around a garden that we didn't think we could probably live stream effectively. Ah, so, okay. But, but, but there's a lot to choose from in there, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about leader. Now, I first discovered, I, I, I like to consider leader as a subgenre of classical music. I know that's not the right term. It's a form rather than a genre. I first discovered leader, I was around 20, a friend of mine turned me on to Winterheist by Fischer Dieskau and Gerald Moore, and it was just like an immense discovery. I don't play any instrument of that type of any quality. It's just as a, a person curious about all types of music. Over the years, I just got more and more interested in it. So you're a leader festival. Leader is the plural of song in German. But there's a lot of songs going on that aren't in German. But it's sort of everyone knows the term leader means song in classical music, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we have this discussion every four or five years. We think, should we become the Oxford you know, international song festival, and and we might do it at some point, but but that'll make you think of Eurovision. Exactly, I think people think of of uh, exactly Eurovision, or you know, what what does it actually tell you about what we do? Because for most people, song you know is is popular song, it's pop song, and uh, and uh, we're not that. Um, we're also, you know, I, I would like not to be pigeonholed in the early nineteenth century in Germany only because we are much more wide ranging than that. But I think. So far, the consensus has been, let's stick with, first of all, how people know us, and also a term that does you know, mean something to people uh, familiar with the genre. But at some point, maybe I still think we should move away from that, because I, you know, we, we want, we're always trying to get new people on board, and we just put up this, very, this first hurdle, in a way, just to understanding what it is that we do at all. Well, one term that's used in English is art song, but that sounds too arty. Yeah. What if you called it the Oxford Leader in Song Festival? I, I, if, if, we, if we stumble on the perfect answer, I'll, I'll let you know. I mean, I think for now <laughs> we're going to stick with it. And what we always do is we make sure we put the word song on any promotional material. So it's usually Oxford Leader celebrating song is our kind of strap line. But, but in any case, what is leader? I mean, it's a person who sings and then there's a, usually a piano accompaniment. 
isn't that pretty much strictly it? I think that that's mainly it. I think the 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 inclusion of um, kind of pre-existing, usually pre-existing poetry, I think is also an important thing that separates it from opera, for example, because I think you could arguably have an opera that was written for, well, you, you, there are operas for voice and piano. Right. Um, but they, you know, I think the idea of an opera, which is a kind of um, extended uh, drama with, with, with different scenes, perhaps, but is also created very often by a librettist in collaboration with a composer. And of course, there are poets and, and composers who collaborate on song as well. But I think generally speaking, you know, there is no perfect formula, is there? But I think that would be one characteristic I would identify. One of the things that, um, in trying to figure out exactly what it is, one of the things I asked Kirk was, well, couldn't Leader just be an aria from an opera? But no, it's a, it's a self-contained song. It's as we think of a song, right? It's exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I think the the important thing is that it it has all the drama of opera as well, but it's just hugely compressed. And I think if you talk to any singer about the challenges of performing an evening of songs, as opposed to an evening on stage at the opera, they'll all tell you the much harder thing is to do an evening of songs, because you have to characterize, you know, 15, 20 different roles in one evening, and you've not even got anybody else there to sort of do it with you. You haven't got fellow cast members and a director telling you what to do. You've got to take it all on yourself. And then you've got to look straight into someone's eyes and deliver it to them. You're also not sitting 30 or 40 meters away with a stage and an orchestra between you and your audience. You tend to have very small, intimate audiences. Certainly, if you come to our festival, that's, you know, it's all about intimacy and connection. Uh, and that in incredible thing of having a, having a singer you know, looking straight into, you, uh, into your eyes and, and pouring their heart out to you is a seriously powerful experience. And I, actually, just to digress a little bit, but a while back, we did a little bit of kind of audience research and we got um we had we had some people come in who had never been to a song recital before we basically bribed them to come and sit in and then reflect on their experiences afterwards <laughs> and one of the remarks that really made me think afterwards was somebody said they'd absolutely loved the concerts but it was only in the fourth concert they came to and we made them come to a minimum of five it was only in the fourth concert they came to that they realized that it was okay to look at the singer and I just thought, oh, no, of course, because, you know, if you don't know what you're not, you, need, you don't need to know what you're doing. But if you've never been to this before, what a strange thing to plonk yourself down. And then someone kind of stands there right in front of you and looks at you and, you know, is, is saying all this sort of hyper intense, very emotional stuff to you. Of course, you're going to look away. It's slightly embarrassing. And then you realize, no, 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 they really want you to look. They really want you to to get that engagement. Um, and, and then, you know, it becomes completely captivating. That's interesting because I live just outside of Stratford-upon-Avon, so I go to the Royal Shakespeare Company very often, and as members, my partner and I get very good seats, and there is very often this contact between the people. And I remember a 2013 production of Hamlet where the Jonathan Slinger was playing Hamlet, and he's doing this um, soliloquy, and he gets to the line, and he looks at my partner, frailty, thy name is woman. <laughs> you can feel the chill, you know, from something like that. It is very personal. We interviewed Ian Bostrich last year, in, early in the lockdown. I seem to recall him mentioning something very similar about the isolation of the leader singer on the stage. But at the same time, there's also you, the pianist. Now, Doug was asking me last week, like, how important is the pianist in a leader? And I'm going to say, you're smiling, I'm going to say 
60-40 singer-pianist, at least in Schubert. Maybe with some composers, the pianist is less important. But in Schubert, maybe even 75, maybe even 50-50 for piano and voice, no? I don't really think you could quantify it like that. Um, but the I, pianist I, is more important than I think a lot of people unfamiliar with the form would consider. Definitely. I mean, I think if it actually came to it, and I've often thought maybe we could do this as an experiment sometime, you would probably find you enjoyed listening to a whole song recital without the singer more than you would enjoy listening to the whole song recital without the piano. Because so much of the interest of the of the underlying activity and colour, obviously the majority of the harmonic interest is all in the piano part. And actually great song composers often write piano parts that are basically fantastic piano pieces with with, with, a, with an interwoven vocal line. If you listen to the vocal line by itself, you, you get a lot less of the kind of expressive impact of, of the song. So I think it's it's a true partnership uh, and a true artistic partnership. And, and, and as a partnership, it's absolutely 50-50. Uh, there are different ways in, in which that manifests itself. I think there are different pressures on the singer, certainly dealing with the human voice, which is very fragile. Because the, the singer's facing the audience and you're facing the side. They're out there. Exactly. They, they, they are out there. They're dealing with their, their, their own voice. And if someone's also, you've always got to remember with singers, if someone says, you know, I didn't like that, it's not like saying I didn't like your violin playing, where it's like, okay, well, you disagreed with my interpretation. It's like saying you, don't, you didn't like something about me physically. Yeah. yeah. The, the timbre of the voice. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas I, you know, I press a note and the sound comes out, and you know, it's it's it's, it's not as as personal. But on the other hand, I think the the preparation of that and the way that the, you, as an accompanist sitting at the piano, can help a singer to feel that they can do exactly what they want. You're you're a great enabler as well, and you can encourage in certain directions. And in fact, you can you can mould the performance a lot more than people realise from the keyboard. Uh, and that's one of the th one of the skills that we accompanists have, I think, is to to remain sort of, you know, we're not exactly in the background, but we're, people are not so intensely aware of us, perhaps. But actually, if they really listen and they know what they're listening for, they realize that it's an absolutely equal partnership and we're steering and guiding the performance just as much as the singer. Is it similar to being an accompanist to like a solo flute or a solo violin or solo cello? Or do you, is it because... Is it because the voice is, is so prominent that there, there's more of a link? There's, there's more importance? I think there, are, there, there definitely are differences. I mean, I play a lot of chamber music as well. I don't only play songs. Um, uh, there are definitely uh, some differences. I, I think the, the main thing is obviously is, as a song pianist, you're listening to text as well. Um, right. You're... you're you're sort of interpreting how the composer has interpreted the text. You're interpreting how the singer has interpreted how the composer has interpreted the text and mm -hmm, these kind mm -hmm. of, you know, multi layers that are going on, but also just on a practical level, you're listening for text and you're listening so that, you know, you, you, you play and uh, you, you, you put your chord down with, with the vowel always, not the consonant, for example, you know, to, right, right. Uh, and you're also listening for, um, the, speaking of that sort of fragility of singers, that, that you're always making sure that you don't, you can really, you know, you can really kill a singer in performance by not understanding their breath control and, and taking too long mm -hmm. over a phrase so that they die at the end of it. And, you know, there, there are lots of things, things like that that you don't have to think about so much in a chamber music performance. Um, but in other ways, I think it's, it's, it's remarkably similar, really. It's, it's all, 
I think people have a perception that that in chamber music the pianist is somehow, you know, a more integral part, and they're you know they must they're probably better pianists or something like that. But I, I don't think that's really true, actually. I think one big difference is, unlike most classical music, I'll put classical in air quotes, the leader singer is not singing from a score. And in most classical music, most musicians are looking at a score, and there's that different there's that different projection, as you say, looking in their eyes, but there's also the fact that are leader singers perhaps a bit more flexible as they mold their phrases according to each performance than someone who's looking at the four four notes in the score? I think there's there's a lot to be said for that. And I'm you know, the, the classic thing, I don't know whether it was true or not, that you know Pavarotti couldn't read music always seemed to me like that would be a great advantage not to be able to read music, but a lot of instrumentalists yes. really look down on that. <laughs> and I think, God, wouldn't it be wonderful not to see all those bar lines and those, you know, page turns and, and, and all those instructions and simply use your ears and your instincts instead. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, there's something to be said uh, for that. Absolutely. And I, I mean, singers, even when they have the score there as a sort of aid memoir, you're right. They're always looking at and communicating very directly with their audience. And so I think, instrumentalists will tell you that they get a lot back from the audience on the stage where, you know, when they're performing, but I don't think it's in the same way that a, a singer does when they can see, and, and again, more so than an audience in opera, sorry, where I think that you, you know, the lights and the distance and the fact that you're looking at colleagues on stage, I mean, you're not as aware, you know, you, you'll get a sense of the room and whether it's a good audience or a bad audience, whether they're getting the jokes or whatever it is, but, but it's not the same level of, two-way process that you get in, in in great song singing. Another thing that's important to note about Lieder, particularly Schubert, but most of this form, is that it was initially a domestic form. It was not made for the concert hall. And we'll link, of course, to your website. There's a video of your ensemble, Schubert & Co., where you have you and eight singers with some carpets on the floor and some tables and lamps, making it look like, you know, an old Schubertiad with friends just standing around the piano singing. Yeah. And this is how it was born. And it's true, you bring it in the concert hall, that changes. Everyone, you know, you can't cough, you can't applaud at the right time. You know, you've got the frigidity of the concert hall. But it is still a form that is much more homey, right? Mm, absolutely. I mean, that's why the word intimacy comes up so often. Uh, and in fact, the, the whole theme of our festival next year is going to be exactly that, friendship in song and intimate art, where we're going to talk about exactly that, how the, how song grew up in sort of salons and for domestic use and, and to be performed by friends, with friends, to friends. Um, and I think that is an important part to, uh, important aspect of it to understand. And interestingly, with Schubert and Co., I, I think... Um, you know, we, we, we're still a young ensemble and we've not had that many uh, outings, but there's always been such a special response. But part of it is definitely not about dressing up the stage with the nice carpet and the glasses. It's about the fact that we all stand around mingling with the audience as the concert's about to begin. And everything is, it, you know, th th there's no kind of formal beginning to the concert. We suddenly, I'm, I'm on stage playing little kind of Lendler and, you know, little piano pieces and dances as the audience come in and the singers are standing around chatting to each other, chatting to the audience. And then we just begin sort of when we feel like it, suddenly there's a song and then we chat a bit. And it's, you know, it's not rethinking the wheel. It's just addressing a little bit the sort of formality of the concert hall. And it's gone down so well. And so I think, um, I think a lot of us are thinking hard about, future presentation of, of classical music and how we we stick sort of true to what we love about it, but we also just ask whether the current concert format has to be the only way to do things.
Yeah, you're not up there in tuxedos. You're not coming out of the wings when it's time to play. And to mention the Royal Shakespeare Company again, very often before plays, when about 20 minutes before the performance start, when you're allowed to go into the room, there are people on stage doing things. With two gentlemen of Verona, they had a cafe set up and they were getting people from the audience to the stage to give them ice cream. And they're often doing that kind of interaction. And then all of a sudden, the house lights just start to dim. And there's this, there's this morphing from you know, the before to the during that's really interesting, that, that does make the audience feel more involved in what's going on, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I love that kind of thing. I think we, we could do with more of it in classical music. And of course, there are there are people doing it um, and doing all sorts of interesting things. Um, it's definitely something I'm, I'm sort of leaning towards more and more. Well, classical performance halls don't lend themselves to that. You know, I go up to Birmingham and, you know, Town Hall and Symphony Hall, and maybe they can lower the stage, but Symphony Hall is this imposing place. I like to say it looks like it was designed by Donald Trump. It's so gaudy inside, the colors and the the gold and all, but, you know, the big stage high up and the seats, and it doesn't lend itself to that intimacy. On the other hand, at Town Hall, they do some concerts where they put a pianist in the center and have people around it. They've had, who's the... German pianist who's performed the Shostakovich Preludes recently, Igor Levitt. They've had him do a couple of things in the round, and that's a different atmosphere. And it's true for, for your ensemble or even for a leader. You, you can do that because it's smaller. But, I mean, I've seen leader singers at Carnegie Hall and the Salle Pleyel in Paris, and there's no way you can create intimacy in those environments. Well, one of the things that, that I have a real bugbear about this, actually, because... I think that song should be the the most popular classical music genre or, or musical genre generally. Well, it is. Outside of classical music, it absolutely is. It's the only genre, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because you've got a text to open it up. If you're not that keen on the music or you don't feel you understand the music or something's missing for you, the music, you can follow a text and it can mean something to you and vice versa. And, you know, you said you, you came into classical song as a teenager listening to Winterreiser. Well, that is the way into it for many people, but and it should be for everybody because, you know, those those hyper-intense emotions about, you know, lost love and anxiety about your st- place in the world, those are, those are the things you come to as a teenager, you feel the most intensely then. You know, I mean, Schubert was dead by the time he was 31, so yeah. it's, it's crazy, this idea that that should only be sung by 50-year-olds or, or, or and upwards. I mean, it, it, you know, the, these kind of mad traditions that, that develop. But I think one of the reasons, and, I, and there's a whole conversation about why song is not the most popular art form in classical music, but I think one of them is the kind of the era of the sort of superstar singer. And I've definitely heard people saying, oh, you know, the golden era when Fischer Dieskauer could fill the Royal Albert Hall with 5,000 people. But for me, that's the end of song because that's when people stopped having any kind of meaningful experience of it. And I've only once been to a concert in the Barbican, to a song recital on that scale. And I went to the Barbican to hear some very famous singers and pianists. And it was, you know, I'm sure it was a wonderful concert, but I was sat high up at the back and it was a totally hopeless experience. I got nothing from it. And I was looking, because it was quite a sort of celebrity, you know, star-studded concert, it was really full of people who would never usually go to a song recital. And I was looking around going, well, thanks guys. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you're getting well paid for this concert, but you've just persuaded all these people that they should never come to another song recital again because it's... Yeah means nothing to them yeah. and I, I think there's a lot people have got a lot to answer for who, who, who to do the celebrity song recital in big spaces like that it just doesn't work and it puts people off 
Yeah. Uh, back to what you said about discovering Weeder as a teenager. At the same time, I was listening to Joy Division and Lou Reed and other things. And you can't say that there's a lot of difference in what the texts are about between a lot of Schubert and, and that type of music. And it's true that if someone is lucky enough to have varied musical tastes, you can make that Venn diagram across these different genres and forms relatively easily. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think, again, that is something that uh, I think a lot of people are thinking about, and you do see more and more um, a kind of blending of, of musical genres. And I haven't yet myself found a way of, of stepping outside of the kind of classical sphere um, directly. But it's something that I'm thinking a lot about. What if you did a program with some Schubert and then, I don't know, some Lou Reed, some Leonard Cohen, some Dylan, you know? Maybe I'm missing it. Do women sing Lita? Sure. Absolutely, yeah. For some reason, I I only link it to men, but it's, I won't do that anymore. <laughs> well, there's more Schubert Lita for men, and there are more, well, there's one monumental Schubert leader singer who's a man, but there are plenty of women who sing as well. In fact, looking at the, the the program for the festival, you have at least as many women as men, if maybe not more women than men. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also pleased that at the moment there's a real move away from this idea that there are, you know, men's songs and, and women's songs, because that is definitely um, a, a relatively modern construct. I mean, we know that, um, you know, one of the very early performances of Schumann's Dichterliebe was, was sung by a woman and, and indeed Winterreiser was being sung by women very early on in its history. And it's only relatively recently that it's sort of become a, a sort of gendered thing that we, we have to think of it like that. And, and there's a lot of people you know, now programming much more freely. And I think you'll see that in our programs. Um, you know, we have for the first time this year, actually, we do have a woman, Catherine Broderick, singing Winterreiser. Um, and it's high time we did that. Um, it's not by any design that we've not done it before. Um, but I, I think that's a very positive move that, that people don't feel they can only sing the men's songs if they're a man and so on. I mean, that was never the composer's intentions. And I guess that's what I was getting at is that it is the intention, male, female singers, or it's that's not important. That's irrelevant. That's they're indifferent. They're Im ambiguous. To that. I'm not sure that I, I suppose having, having said it wasn't the composer's intention, I'm not sure they're always indifferent to it. I think. Yeah. And, and there are some songs that you think, OK, that well, there are some you know, I'm thinking low bass songs that are written sure. with the bass clef for or very high stratospheric sopranos, you know, early Debussy songs. You wouldn't want to hear them sung by a bass baritone, probably. <laughs> but it would be interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think that's more about the 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 timbre and the quality of the voice as much as anything else. I see, right. Um, but where the vocal line sits equally well for, for male or female voices, and, and, you know, everyone performs in different keys as well. Tenors and, and baritones and basses all sing the same songs, but they just, you know, they change keys for them, of course. So right. it's fairly flexible. One thing that might be off-putting to people who discover a leader is not understanding the texts. And you know, you're listening in German or you're listening in Norwegian or French or whatever it is to these songs. And if you don't understand them, that makes it more difficult. Yeah, well, we're very careful, first of all, to make sure that everything we do, people have access to the translations. So we would never do a concert that didn't have a printed program with text and translations. Um, for our, uh, well, for many of our concerts recently, we've also, in person concerts, we've, we've, we've trialed having big screens on the stage with 
um, with surtitles effectively, um, which works quite well in some of our venues, unfortunately not in the venues we're using this year. So it's going to be back to just printed programs really for 2021. Uh, and for our online streaming, I hope that by the time we come to the spring of next year, we'll be able to fully integrate a live subtitling into that as well. It's actually more complicated than you think. We now yeah. have a solution, but a little bit too late to integrate it for this year's festival. Um, but, you know, if people watching at home will have the PDF of all the text and translations provided to them. We have a huge database that we've made publicly available online as well. So people can go and read again and explore on our website um, where we've got literally thousands of song texts and translations freely available. Uh, and I think that is a really important part of it. There is another side to that, which is that, of course, it's the singer's job to communicate that text. And the important parts of the text aren't necessarily the detail of the words themselves. And they're, they're, um, the wonderful mezzo-soprano Sarah Walker was due to do one of her farewell concerts with us some years ago um, when she decided to stop singing. And unfortunately, in the end, she decided to stop singing just a little bit before um, she came to do that. Um, but And I was going to be playing for her and we were discussing this and she said to me, I absolutely will not do this concert if you print text and translations and have the audience with text and translations. I will not do a recital where all the audience have their heads stuck in their programs and they're not looking at me. Yes. If I cannot convey to them the essence of these texts, yeah. I'm not doing my job. And you can hand it out on the door on the way out and they can go home and they can read up all the detail later if they want to. But while I am singing, they will look at me and I will explain to them what they're hearing and they don't need to understand a word. Not, yeah. li not, not, yeah. not in literal terms. Yeah, that sounds right yeah. to me. I, I've seen, I once sat next to someone in a concert, uh, it might have been the Sal Playel or someplace, piano thing where he was following the score and turning the pages as it was being played. And I was thinking, what is wrong with this guy? Is he looking for mistakes or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm afraid often that I think is, is the case. I know, but I know. I think with song texts, I mean, one thing I always say to newcomers to the form is, look, it takes a little while to find your way into experiencing a song recital. It's not like going to sit and sitting and listening to a string quartet you know there are there are sort of you need to work out what to do with that booklet you've got with the words in personally i very rarely look at it during a concert but that's not for everybody some people really want to sit and they want to read it some people want to just look down and skim before the song begins so they have a broad understanding and then they look back up you know and, and each to their own with that there's no right or wrong. I, I like reading the text before listening to the music, not during. And and there's a lot of Schubert Lieder that I've heard so much that I don't need to look at the text anymore. But sometimes I do want to, you know, focus on one song. It's like, what what words is this person stressing here? Why is he stressing them? And at that point, you know, you do want to look at the text. But when you're at home, you can do that, not in a concert. I've been curious about one thing. It took a pianist to create a song festival and to do all the Schubert leader, among other things. It took a pianist to make the first big, complete Schubert project, Graham Johnson for Hyperion. Why is it the pianist who's doing all this rather than the singer? Um, hmm, how to answer that? <laughs> well, I guess maybe part of it is that we're not always off on, uh, on big opera contracts. And so we rely on, on something that for singers is a kind of nice adjunct to their operatic careers which is how they actually make their living for us this is our living yeah uh, and so we have to be creative in how we approach that um but i think often in the same way a little bit that you we talked about already on stage the singer is uh, the pianist rather is just 
guiding a little bit more than the audience necessarily realizes. Right. I think that's often the case behind the scenes as well. And that can be program building and suggestions. So sort of the knowledge of the repertoire that you pick up as a pianist is obviously not something that singers may experience. And therefore, you can help singers when they come to you to build a new program. You can often be very helpful with that, that sort of thing and I think in terms of seeing links and openings and bringing in lots of different singers to work on projects that's the sort of thing that's very well suited to to pianists um yeah and, and we're all you know finding our, our our way of make you know our careers are all very varied there are very very few people who only play the piano and just get to make their living from doing that um and but but even if they are lucky enough to do that they're still looking for projects and things to do and and you know, things to take to concert halls and bring new singers into and things to explore. So uh, there's always a lot of sort of curiosity there and enthusiasm to present new ways of looking at things. And I, I think often that just happens to stem from um, from the from the pianists. I know that the finances of the recording industry mean that we'll never see another complete Schubert record set. It would be great if there was one every generation. It's so easy to do a complete Schumann, you know, what is it, 11 CDs or something. Anyone can do that. Grieg songs are five or six, I don't remember how many. But Schubert is, I think the Hyperion set was 37 discs, and I guess we won't see another one. That's all right, 37 rounded up to 40 with the Friends and Contemporaries discs. Right, um, yeah. Well, it was an incredible achievement. Um, there is the very excellent Naxos recording as well, um, similar number. And who knows, maybe there will be another one, but... Um, yeah, I think as a historical record, the next one would be interesting, you know, in, in a generation of, of who the new singers are, because obviously part of the appeal of Graham's unbelievable series is all those different singers that you get to hear. And, it, you know, it was created over a very long period of time. So it's a historic landmark. Um, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of, of things being recorded over and over again. For, for the sake of it, I mean, we all do it. It's kind of a professional calling card almost. But yeah. there is, you know, there's so little financial gain from it these days. It's really like making, you know, printing your business cards as much as anything else. A bar, a few, you know, a few people, a few labels and a few celebrity musicians. No, no one's doing it for the money, that's for sure. Yeah. So are you ever going to do another complete Schubert festival? Because this time I would do everything to be able to attend that. <laughs> well, we're going to have to mark 10 years since the Schubert project in 2024, I think. We have to do something then, but it won't be a complete Schubert. But watch this space, because I think, you know, it's not that long until the bicentenary will come around in 2028. 28. Um, okay, seven years? Okay, I won't be too years. old. It'll pass, it'll pass quickly. So I suspect that if you if you look carefully in 2024 you'll see us do something both to mark 10 years since the schubert project but also to announce our plans for 2028 because i've already actually earmarked a few dates seven years from now for various things and i think it, it won't be the same we're not just going to recreate exactly the same thing i have some some other ideas around it to keep it fresh and relevant and exciting um but we will do something Okay, Sholto Kainach, thank you very much for joining us. Links in the show notes to your website, to the Oxford Leader Festival. And seriously, anyone who cares at all about Leader, 165 pounds to stream the entire festival, that's a no-brainer. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon patron of the show. It only takes a, a few dollars a month. Think of it as like, you know, coffee money, right? 
You're buying the two of us a coffee and a tea for the next episode, that sort of thing. Your support will make the gears turn. And if you haven't already, become a patron of The Next Track at patreon.com slash the next track. Future listeners salute you. What have you got there, friendo? I got some new music today delivered. I got the Chicago Live at Carnegie Hall, 16 CDs, 8 concerts, complete recordings. We mentioned this in passing not long ago, and it was released today, so it was delivered today. I have not listened to it yet, so this is really my next track. It's got... Have you heard the single that they've released? They've released a, very, a, a 25 or 6 to 4 single, which is not the one that was re included in the original. Right, and I think they also did an Elegy single as well yesterday. Um, mm -hmm. I've Yes, I've listened to them. It's a nice package. It's LP-sized. It's got... All the little CDs in, in like like an album kind of thing, you know, the way they do that in the big things. It's got a very large booklet with liner notes. It's got posters and all sorts of stuff. So I'm very excited. I'm going to be listening to this over the weekend. What about you? Well, I found another one of those bands that recorded in the 60s that I guess were popular in California, but never got the oomph from the record company or or their fans, for that matter, to get launched to the East Coast. So I never heard of them. The Litter. They are a, a psychedelic garage band that were uh, popular, I guess, for a few minutes anyway. In uh, 67, 68, they put out a few albums. I'd never heard of them. Um, they may have popped up on a, like on a Nuggets album, you know, on some, sign of, some kind of psychedelic or garage band retrospective. But other than that, I'm not really sure I'd, I'd ever heard of them. They had a, a fairly popular album called Distortions, as a debut, and they were famous for doing a song called Action Woman, and they also covered The Who's A Legal Matter. And now their second album is the one that I've been hearing on Apple Music. Specifically, I've been hearing a version of The Zombies' She's Not There, performed by The Litter. The musical lineup is uh, bass, guitar, drums, and Farfisa, and this particular version of She's Not There sounds a lot like The Doors' Light My Fire, especially, it's a, it's a long version for one thing, and it's got this extended instrumental part, very similar to Light My Fire, even has the same chords, used this as the same sort of Farfisa uh, sound in it. I don't know. They came out around the same time, so it's certainly possible one influenced the other or not. But anyway, this is really some interesting psychedelic garage band music from The Litter. I'm going to recommend this, this second album called $100 Fine, but really... Any of their albums will give you a good idea of what they sounded like. Not the greatest of recordings, but like I said, they were regionally popular, and uh, so expect that kind of quality. The Litter, $100 Fine, is my next track. This was episode number 218 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comment section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.